0: Let's Make It Count is a campaign to help the next generation learn about their community and world through data. It's led by our team at UC Berkeley and the West Big Data Hub, funded in part by the National Science Foundation in partnership with the 2020 Census and Census Bureau's Statistics and Schools Program. I am very excited to invite our special guest today, Julia Silgi. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
0: I've been looking forward to this discussion for some time because you have such a cool story. You studied physics and astronomy in school, then went on to become a professor, both teaching and research, and now you're a data scientist. So tell us about your journey.
1: That's right. That's right. So I knew I was interested in STEM and then going into a STEM field when I was younger and really found the idea of studying physics really appealing when I was you know, in high school and in college. And what was most appealing to me about studying physics is that it it asked some of the really fundamental interesting questions about you know like the world we live in I found that really interesting once I was in, in college and started working on working for a professor you know on a research project or in a lab I found that I really loved working with real world data and really found a lot of fulfillment and and also that I was good at, really kind of getting my hands dirty with dealing with messy data from the real, real world and how to talk about it with people, how to make plots with it, how to ask, like, learn how to understand what questions can we ask and answer with data. And that helped understand that I wanted to move towards these really applied, using data in the real world kinds of careers. Kind of what astronomy is like, is taking some of these mathematical tools, some of these tools from physics and a Applying it, say to galaxies, which is what I studied, and then after uh, some time in the university work setting, I, I ended up looking for ways to apply it outside. Like these same kind of sk- skills of, hey, we've got all this data being you know generated, or we want to be able to understand what kind of questions we can answer with the data, and so I, I updated some skills, learned some different, more modern programming languages and whatnot and end up pursuing data science because it uses so many of the same skills and interests that I've always found so much fulfillment from using. So it applied a lot of the background and interests I had, but in in a new way now that so many different kinds of companies and organizations are are facing some of those same questions.
0: That is fascinating. And you know it's so funny how we go into topics in our studies that are we're so passionate about. And then as our career unfolds, there's kind of these twists and turns and, and, you know, we continue to find our passion kind of throughout our careers. And that's just such an, such an exciting story. A project you worked on that I found really incredible was you were part of the team leading Stack Overflow's developer survey, which correct me if I'm wrong, but it reached literally millions of developers. And what was cool about that is it shed a light on the demographics in these important fields like computer science and data science. Why was that project so important? And and maybe give us a little bit of background on on, on what you all brought to bear with that.
1: Yeah, I was super excited to work on this project every year that that I was at Stack Overflow. So Stack Overflow for anybody who isn't familiar with it is the world's largest online community for people who write code. So if you're someone who, you know, writes code for the web or who is interested in writing code as a data scientist or writing code for embedded devices like Internet of Things kind of code, which you might find in, you know, your doorbell or your thermostat in your house. So any Anybody who writes code likely uses Stack Overflow as part of their daily, as part of their daily work. You you run into a error message because you type something wrong, or you don't you don't know what happened, and you can Google the error message you get and end up finding answers on this uh, on this community where people share knowledge together. So one of the big projects that Stack Overflow does every year is this annual survey, and it's the largest annual survey every year of people who write code. It draws from people all around the world. And one of the really interesting... So there's so much interesting... Information that we can gather from it, things about uh, how our technologies changing, which kinds of developers use, which kinds of technologies, which technologies are used together. What are the opinions of people who write code? And uh, this is interesting to me both because I am a person who writes code, and because I really am interested in the culture around around communities who are technical communities. I've been in STEM since I was 18 years old, and I went off to college to become a Physicists. And so, like, this is these communities are places that I have been deeply involved in for so long. One of the things we can learn from this survey is about the demographics, and demographics uh, are, are ways of learning about. What kind of people you have in in any given population? You know, you can learn about the demographics of your city, you can learn about the demographics of, you know, the country really broadly. And so the Stack Overflow Developer Survey helps us learn about the demographics of people who write code. And so one thing we unfortunately know is that people who write code, people from minority genders, women, people from minority racial and ethnic groups, like non non non-white folks tend to be underrepresented among the population of people who write code like more so than you expect based on you know what you might see in any given city or country and we can see that reflected in the developer survey and we can understand how big of a problem it is it also can help us understand for example who is not participating in this online community that we have and understand who isn't having their voice heard. We can also dig even a little deeper and ask questions like, what kind of problems is the developer community having with retention? And what we find in the developer survey aligns with other research around around the fact that, for example, women, and as far as we can measure, other folks, other minority gender folks, are retained in these tech jobs at lower rates. And so we see these distributions of, say, experience by gender by reported gender, where we see, oh, we, we, over time, we don't, you know, we're not seeing more and more women at these more experienced, at these highly experienced levels. And so we can say, ah, this agrees with other research that's out there that um, we have, we have this continuing problem in the tech industry, this reflective of cultural issues, workplace issues where we're not, that are contributing to this problem of not supporting women, minority gender folks to maintain their tenure and being able to get to these more experienced levels. There's so much that is in the Stack Overflow Developer Survey. And over the years that I worked at Stack Overflow, I felt like that's just one example of um, the super interesting things that we could learn both about the technologies and about the culture in coding.
0: Well, I can't think of a more important body of work, you know, speaking to the culture and how it, how important it is to have all voice represented in a community and in a field. So thanks to you and the team for, for spearheading that. You know, were there organizations who said, hey, we want to get involved and we want to help Uh, help the community and we want to increase diversity or work on these retention problems. Were there any really interesting examples of leadership from other companies that saw what you all did and then took that information and said, we're going to try to make a difference?
1: One example that I can think of that was really fun to work with was the company called Glitch glitch.com and one of the years that we worked with them on the survey they made some of the survey data available to to anyone and really made it easy for people to kind of explore the data in a very playful way and allow folks who are were just maybe beginning to learn to code, to be able to say, hey, I want to kind of take the next step in being able to understand, e- especially some of this demographic data, because people were always really interested in it. And we can we can actually share some of those, some of those apps that were made because they are actually apps that, you know, any of the listeners of this podcast could take and They call it remixing, where you can actually just like click a button and then start changing things in the app itself and make your own version of it.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So, thank you for that. So, I wanted to talk about another important topic in the software community, and this has to do with kind of an enabling an enabling area of open source. And I know over the years, you know, since I've been in in the tech world, at first I I looked at open source and, and. didn't have a lot of involvement and, and thought it was really cool, but didn't just didn't see the broader impact or didn't totally understand how this was going to change the world. But now we're really kind of in this era where every organization that writes software is definitely using open source in some form. They are sharing repositories or contributing. In your current role at our studio, you contribute a significant amount of work to the community through open source, both personally and uh, and your company. Can you explain what is open source and why has it become so important?
1: That's a great question. So open source software is software that is effectively free. And free is a word that in English has a couple of meanings, like free as in you don't have to pay for it, like free as in lunch, like, like here is a free lunch for you, or free as in speech meaning um, you have the ability to do with it what you want. And uh, open source software typically is free in both of those senses, meaning someone like me, for example, builds a right, a piece of software, and then puts a license on it so that it is with the license. I'm giving permission for other people to to use it and then for other people to build on it, to take it and to, you know, make it into a different form, to, uh, to you know, remix it effectively. Uh, and usually the licenses have some, you know, rules about that you, you link back to what I did and you acknowledge the work that I put into it and whatnot. So this has been a huge driver of... Innovation—we can say—of change, of growth, of people coming up with incredible tools for building for on the web, for data science, the field that I work in. It—it has uh, really changed the software landscape. There are so many things about open-source software that I love. Some of the things I love are that I get to work with people around the world who I never would have met in any in any other way. It's people whose ideas are amazing um, that I get to get exposed to. Open, if, you, if you're hearing about this and it sounds like so utopian and wonderful, it also comes along with uh, sets of challenges. One of the big challenges that you're hearing about it, you might be like, but why does anyone do this? <laughs> why does anyone build something for free? And that is actually a challenge that comes along with open source software What can we do to make these ecosystems sustainable? Oftentimes, these pieces of software uh, are, you know, if you were to ask some question like, what are they actually worth? You know, it would be even hard to measure how much they're worth because they contribute to so much economic activity in our in the world like they they really drive so much like they build so much of web or so much commerce or economic economic activity you know uses this open source software but often the people who are specifically building that code aren't directly compensated for doing that So you end up in an interesting tension because the openness and the free, you know, the freeness in both those senses, free as in lunch and free as in speech, are what has contributed to the lowering of the barriers is what has contributed to these things being made and the collaboration. But it's also a challenge for people. For example, people burn out, you know, like people will work on something and then decide like, oh gosh, I, you know, I can't do this anymore. It's not sustainable. If a project gets very popular, people are working on or trying out, I would say, experimenting with different models for how to make open source software more sustainable. One of the models is the one that my company is trying out. So I work for a company called Studio that I, I love. And the, the model there is that I... Like my job is just to build open source software now and the company makes money like a, like some people in the company b- build open source software and some people in the company make products that are built on top of the open source software that companies pay money for. And so it's like a... Let's call it an economic engine that is built on top of open source software that we plan for to bring like to bring value to our customers. And the idea is that it's like a a virtuous cycle where the like it can pay for itself um, so that we can keep going and make what we want to have out there.
0: There's there's so many angles to open source. And I appreciate you touching on a few of those. And if I'm not mistaken, our studio was recently certified a B Corp and I think it speaks to how you know really the social good element of of open source how how the transparency around the software helps prevent things like software bias and and ai ai bias now increasingly and so i think it i think it is you know really encouraging to see companies take leadership position in this area and just signal to all their stakeholders their their customers their their users their shareholders that that we care about kind of the greater good if you will and i see open source becoming increasingly prevalent as as there's more of these business models that enable companies to be successful. So, so very cool stuff. So shifting gears here, we have the national challenge that is running through this fall, encouraging students in high school to pick a data, an interesting data problem and really explore their community and the world through the lens of data. You've done a lot of interesting work that we've we've touched on. I want to dive a little bit deeper into some spe- specific topics and perhaps uncover some use cases that students may consider exploring for the National Challenge. And I'm going to start with uh, census data, and then I'm going to jump to a completely different uh, topic called text mining, which you have expertise in both of these. So maybe let's start with census data. Have you used census data in some of your real-world work?
1: I sure have. And you know what? I bet if you ask most working data scientists, they would say yes, because the census data, like data available through the census, is incredibly valuable. It is we were just talking about open source software and one of the ways people talk about it is like it's a like a public good like the way roads are or public education like a public good that that is here for all of us and makes things better for all of us and the census data is like that it is it's like a public good that is there that makes things better for for every single one of us and i absolutely <laughs> have used the census data in my real world work i'll just briefly say like when i worked at at Stack Overflow, which is you know like a tech company, and we had various kinds of models that I would we would build and train. Um, we would go to the census data to be able to have say population distributions to be able to compare to. It probably is occurring to you right now, the kinds of things we would want to compare to. So for example, the the users of our website were people who code and we would be interested in knowing, hey, what are cities or communities that have a lot of people who code relative to how many people who are there. And this was interesting to, you know, the people who wanted to advertise on our site. So we could we would be able to go and say things like, you know, there are obvious answers like the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. But it turns out there are other pockets in the United States. It turns out that there are a lot of people who code in certain, especially actually certain areas around big universities that have, uh, you know, like very healthy research communities. And you're really like, oh, that makes sense. Actually, now that I think about it, a lot of people are coding at these, you know, smaller college town kind of communities. And, but but you know, like this is valuable information for advertisers if they want to be able to advertise their products to people who code. So that that's just you know, that's just like one sort of example of a a way that the census data is used. And it's, there's, it is such rich, extensive, fine-grained data that can be used in so many different ways. One one more extensive use that I worked on recently was a project with some collaborators that was actually published in a medical journal. I, I never would have guessed that I would have had work published in a medical journal with the background that I have. This was a project about the Opioid epidemic. And there, we had one data set that was about the where, so this was a, it was a data set for Texas. It was the, Prescriptions for opioids. So these were legal, legal opioid prescriptions in Texas over a certain time period and across all the counties in Texas. And we, you know, we could look for patterns. We could see how they were changing over time, how they were changing geographically. But we really got so much more value, so much more detail, so much more information from that opioid prescription data when we combined it with census data because the data was you know, cut up, was aggregated at the county level. So we could go to the census data, which is publicly available, and get county level data on, for example, population. And then we could say, okay, well, we have the prescription data, but then we can divide it by the population data and understand what is the prescription rate, prescriptions per person. Even more than that, the opioid epidemic we know has as we knew from previous research, you know, has a differential impact with race and ethnicity. Um, And so we could actually get that race and ethnicity data from the the census as well. And then we could actually use modeling to understand what is this differential impact? And and then actually, how did it change over time? Because Texas, it turns out, had some, some policy changes in the opioid prescription Policy, like how, how easy was it to get opioids via prescription? Like in the, it changed around, I think 2018 or so. And we could actually really see in our data the, this shift. In what the impact the policy had and how much the policy changed things for different racial and ethnic groups. So the this is a this is an example of how of how of just the incredible value of the census data. Like the census data wasn't collected to learn about the opioid epidemic in Texas, but it is this, you know, this public good that's out there that is valuable, flexible, and can be used in so many different ways, and can be, for example, combined with other data sets, if you happen to have them, like in this example, where we had the, um, the prescription data and be, can be used to increase the value of other data sets. But even on its own, there's so much there that's interesting.
0: I love those examples. And I think you highlighted a couple really interesting Let's say data, data design patterns that a student could, could use for a submission ba- based on a unique, you know, a unique story in their community or, you know, a topic of interest. One that you highlighted was, okay, how do I take my research topic, say it be advertising in an industry or looking at an issue like the opioid crisis? And then how do you bring in census data to understand relative to the, to the population size? Do we have particular density or you can think of like a heat map and there's other types of visuals that you could actually apply to this download census data from from census.gov find other freely available data sets states have a ton of this of this public good data that you can use so I, I love that example and then you also touched on looking at patterns over time which is also really cool because you know the world is changing and so if you're able to not just look at a snapshot then you can begin to dive into, okay, how did this this policy change or how did this behavior change in the population? So I love both of those that you brought up. I did want to touch on a super interesting topic uh, in data science, which is called text mining. So you're an expert in this area and you've actually written a book on it. Can you share an interesting data use case or two on text mining?
1: Sure. I love... I love dealing with text data, so uh, I, you know, I've always been, I've always been a reader. I, you know, you know, I went into like physics and astronomy and math and science, but I'm definitely someone who's always been just loved like language and literature and reading. And one of the things I love about working in Data science is that there are so many opportunities to combine my love of words and language and literature with my interest in, you know, math and science and coding. One of my favorite projects that I worked on that involved, involved text mining. So text mining is this, you know, this quantitative analysis of text. Usually you have to have a pretty big data set of text to be able to use quantitative methods, but you have some big data set of text. And instead of reading it all, you know, with your own brain, you use these quantitative methods to be able to statistically analyze what's going on in the text. So you, t- you treat the text as data. One of my favorite projects was one that I worked on in collaboration with these really great experts, like data visualization experts at this place called The Pudding. And it, what we did was they had this data set of film scripts, of movie scripts. And I did, I did the analysis and then they helped me by making these really cool interactive plots with the results that I had at the end. So I took these film scripts and I removed all the dialogue. And in a movie script, once you take out the dialogue, what you have left is called the set direction. And that's, these are like the instructions for what the um, actors should do how they should act, like what emotions they should portray and whatnot. So I took all that set direct, And then I went through all of the the set direction for this large data set of movies. And I went and I found all of the bigrams, which is a word that means set of two words. So all of the sets of two words. And then looked for all the ones where the first uh, word in the bigram, the first word in the set of two words was he or she. And then looked at that second word and then looked for statistical differences. So basically asking the question, what were characters who are described with he more likely to do? versus what are characters with she more likely to be told to do? So we're looking at like how in movies, what are these gender differences? How are our women portrayed in movies versus how are men portrayed in movies? And the results are just super interesting and funny and kind of terrible. It's <laughs> just really interesting to see. So the, the some of the biggest differences are that we, we end up with a statistic that's like a likelihood. So the words with the highest likelihood to come after she she are words like she snuggles, she giggles, she squeals, she sobs. And the words that are most likely to come after he are words like he gallops, he shot, he kills, he howls. So there are these really dramatic gendered differences in these these most different words. Um, but then you can also, you can go through and see the words at the middle that don't have differences, very neutral verbs. These are verbs like claps, watches, opens. So some verbs are in the middle where, you, where, where you're like, oh, interesting. These are These are verbs that men and women are about equally likely to be portrayed doing in movies. And then I hope we can You know, include this in the show notes because the visualizations are very fun to play with. They're interactive because it turns out we have information on the gender of the writers of the movie, like the film, the writer. And you can basically condition on the writer, like control for the writer and say, hey, what are women writers more likely to write about women characters versus what are women writers more likely to write about male characters and see you know kind of in this these quadrants what are we more likely to see there so what I love about this is so I've used I've used techniques like this to for very practical day-to-day questions you know in my job as a working at tech companies being able to answer questions about you know ad clicks or how communities interact or whatever but like you can use these same kinds of techniques to get at very uh, what I find very compelling questions about culture and stories, stories that we are telling each other all the time. And I, I love being able to kind of shine a light on that and be able to say like, oh yeah, like this is just what we're being shown all the time. And like, oh yeah, let's notice that. So that's one of my favorite examples of of using text mining
0: that's amazing i mean just being able to use data to understand culture i would have never thought to do that in in the movie industry and looking at scripts and and uncovering as you pointed out some things you might expect and and reinforcing perhaps some some gender uh, bias in in that data what i what i find interesting in text mining is you may not naturally think of text as a data set but there are a set of tools you can use to represent its as data on on your computer, and then you can pull out some of these conclusions from it. I've seen some interesting open data sets, and Julia, feel free to chime in here, but you can use Twitter, streams as open data sets. And so you can begin to look at sentiment analysis, for example, and break down kind of the tone of the text. And there's a lot of these sources out there and you can compare these data sets or or merge these data sets with, with census data or with other data sets to build more complex insights. I know at one hackathon I participated in, it had to do with emergency preparedness. And one of the teams created a sentiment analysis tool using Twitter data as as storms were impacting a community. And so they were able to kind of see and pinpoint, okay, based on users of Twitter having tweets that, that had the word tornado, they could kind of see the path of a storm uh, kind of with a geographic representation and then also from an emergency preparedness standpoint, try to understand, okay, where do we need to deploy resources to go support a tornado that just touched down? So some really interesting use cases of text mining. Well, thank you so much, Julia. You've been very gracious with your time. I love diving into all these really cool topics. Uh, any, any parting remarks you'd like to share with our audience or words of encouragement for students that are thinking about this challenge?
1: One thing I love about the census data that's out there, you know, if people are thinking about wanting to pick up something and, uh, you know, try something out, is that there are so many opportunities to try something from, hey, I just want to maybe get some data and look at it kind of briefly, like it's very accessible. You could even, one thing I've been thinking about lately in my, in my city is issues around housing affordability, for example. And um, you can get data about that from the census and you can do something kind of, you can start at something that is more straightforward, like just looking at the cost And then you can kind of, if you're interested in digging more, you can then kind of, hey, let's get some like a different data, a different data set and, you know, use them together, like the cost and then get census data about income and then be able to say, oh, I can look at what places where, sure housing costs are high here, but also people are paid more here versus finding places where how out of balance is that? And and you'll understand that, say, in the state where you live, or you can then break it down by, say, county in the state where you live. Or if you want to even go further, you can then, you know, maybe learn how to make a map or something and be able to understand where that is. So one thing I love about the census data is that you can start with something... Uh, You can start with something that is more straightforward and then you can keep taking steps, you know, basically as far as you want to go in terms of how complex or detailed your analysis can be. That's one thing that I think is amazing about this resource that, you know, really belongs to all of us.